a Fokker F-27 goes down in the sea just miles away from the runway in McKay, Australia. Why did the mystery of this crash become a major turning point in aviation history? back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. And I'm Christy. And welcome to Spooky Season. Welcome to the cursed episode. Yeah, this Apparently. is... Apparently. <laughs> we've watched this episode twice. So this is the third time we're recording it. The first two times we recorded it were in succession, one after the other, and we... Lost them for different reasons. Lost them for different reasons. So we put it off because we just didn't want to try to do it again that same week. So we are now re-recording it much, much later. Thanks to Chris for recommending this episode, as you did many, many, many months ago. Yes. <laughs> Thanks, Chris Stellard. Um, since this is the first time we're really recording after it happened, Chris is one of our flight crew patrons. Yes. He is of the highest tier. So about a week ago from when we're recording this, we did a Zoom call with him instead of a live stream since he's the only one. And we planned it for an hour and it ended up being two and a half hours because we just had so much to talk about. We had so much fun. So if you guys ever want to be a part of that, please subscribe to Patreon, to the Flight Crew tier. It is one of your benefits. Yeah, it was awesome. Also, there's two other ways you can support us if you can't afford to do Patreon. One of them is giving us a review on Apple Podcasts. Yeah. Because the more reviews we have, the higher up our podcast gets. The other is just word of mouth. You know, telling your friends and family how much you like listening and then having them listen as well. So if you can't support us on Patreon, which we get, not everybody can, word of mouth and reviewing, especially on Apple Podcasts, are two huge ways you can help us. Yes, they are. So with that being said, what are we covering today, Nick? So we are doing Trans-Australian Airlines Flight 538. So this happened on June the 10th of 1960. This was a, I'm sorry, a Fokker. F-27 Friendship, F-O-K-K-E-R. Yes, that is the name of the company. They are Dutch, so... Blame the Dutch. Yes. In any case, this airplane was an F-27 Friendship, which is a twin turboprop. It is a high wing. It is smaller, a smaller airplane. Uh, it's more of what you would consider a regional carrier, but it is not of a large size, basically. The tail number for the airplane was Victor Hotel Tango Foxtrot Bravo. It was delivered on April 6th of... 1959. So, not long before this, actually, it was just over a year before this uh, accident, the airplane was named Abel Tasman after the first European to reach New Zealand and Tasmania. Good job. Yep, as well as parts of Australia in the 1600s. This was the first F-27 that was built for the airline, Trans-Australian Airlines, and the acceptance of the aircraft had been attended by the Australian ambassador and his wife at the Dutch factory. By the date of this accident in June of 1960, the airline had taken delivery of 12 total F-27 aircraft. So in just over a year, they had acquired 12 of them, but this was the first one. The captain was F.C. Pollard. We have neither first nor middle name. We only have a last name and initials. Same with the first officer, who was G.L. Davis. Also don't have hours for either one of them. Couldn't figure any of that out. This was an older report. This was a, to be a scheduled flight from Brisbane to Mackay, with intermediate stops in Maryborough, and Rockhampton, which were all three very short flights in Queensland, Australia. The flight departed Brisbane at 5.11pm with a nice smooth and short flight over to Maryborough. It arrived at Maryborough at 5.52pm, so a little over 40 minutes later. It then departed 20 minutes later 
at 6.12 p.m. for Rockhampton. It arrived an hour later at Rockhampton without incident. Just before landing at Rockhampton, the flight received a special weather advisory report, which indicated shallow ground fog at McKay, up to 20 feet, with visibility of 880 yards. So, in other words, the ground fog only went up 20 feet off the ground, but that covered 20 feet down to the ground. So they couldn't see the ground. Visibility was only 880 yards, so not very far at all. The flight crew were required to have an alternate landing airport due to the weather. On arrival at Rockhampton, there were nine passengers aboard, continuing to McKay. At Rockhampton, seven adults and nine schoolboys from the Rockhampton Grammar School boarded the airplane. I always hate it when that happens, because you know what's but coming next. That boys get uh, on That airplane? children get on airplanes oh. in these stories. Yeah. A lot of them from schools. Oh, it sucks. It's like a whole class of kids get on If it's airplane. on this podcast, it probably didn't end well, so. Unfortunately. They were headed home for a long holiday weekend, the Queen's birthday. Yes, Australia still celebrates the Queen's birthday. Yeah, we talked about it for Qantas? I think so. So, the Queen... We talked about England. it. For the, we talked about it for the comets. Oh, the comets! Yes. Yeah, the Queen of England is the head of state for Australia and New Zealand. Still, so yep. even though they are they're independent countries, correct? Yes. And I don't know exactly how much power she has. So well, she doesn't have much power over England. So we'll move on. Yeah. The crew took time to plan out the alternate airport, which would be Townsville. Yes, that is a place. That's amazing. Townsville. Townsville. <laughs> it's from Powerpuff Girls. Yeah, I know. That's amazing. It's amazing. It's actually a place, and it's literally just called Townsville. They also took on 700 gallons of extra fuel to allow for extra flying time to reach an alternate if they needed it. So they took on quite a bit more fuel. The aircraft departed Rockhampton at 7.52 p.m. with a scheduled flight time of 52 minutes. 52 comes up a lot, and 2 has come up a lot in here. That said, the aircraft climbed to 13,000 feet for cruising. The flight crew reported over Karen Point at 8.17 p.m. They were 80 miles south of McKay at the time, still at 13,000 feet. They reported this to air traffic control with an estimated landing time of 8.40 p.m. This was a prescribed checkpoint, so in other words, this was a point along the route that they check in per their actual schedule. At that time, air traffic control informed the flight crew that the airport was closed for landings due to weather. This remained the case as the airplane entered the area that it would normally begin their descent. The captain then told air traffic control that they would remain at 13,000 feet and circle over McKay. Obviously, they did this hoping weather would get better. At 8.45 p.m., the air traffic controller advised the crew that visibility was fluctuating between two to two and a half miles along runway 1432, so 14 on one end and 32 on the other end. It was a well-moonlit night, allowing some ability to see for the crew. The pilot reported back that the lights from the city and the surrounding country could be seen clearly, but a bank of fog that extended about 10 miles was situated to the southwest of the airport, moving northeast over the airfield. He then requested landing instructions from air, air traffic control. So he could see that there was fog moving over the land and that it was kind of, it may have been clearing at the airport, but there was fog moving toward and over the airport. But he requested the landing instructions. The air traffic controller cleared the flight to make a visual approach for runway 14. The crew reported on final at 8.55 p.m., at which point they were cleared to land by air traffic control. As the aircraft reached about 50 feet over the runway, the crew advised air traffic control that a small patch of fog had suddenly appeared over the runway. They flew over the runway at about 50 feet, then began to climb away as they went around. You can always go around. Yep, and they did. The pilot advised air traffic control that they would look at the approach to runway 32 instead for a second attempt. The air traffic controller observed the aircraft descending on approach for runway 32. They reached a height of about 200 feet, but they aborted the landing before crossing the threshold and began climbing away again. So, in other words, they attempted to do the other end. Still didn't work. Still didn't go well. 
they went around. This is starting to sound very familiar. Yeah. Hmm. Like Manx. Yeah, like the one that came out this week. Mm. Mm-hmm. At this point, I would just divert. They have plenty of fuel. They have tons of fuel. The crew then requested permission to hold over McKay again at 5,000 feet until the weather improved. This was approved, and the crew did so until about 10 p.m. So now they've been in the air for a long time. A lot longer than planned. This is, mind you, over an hour later. At about 10.02 p.m., the air traffic controller noted that conditions had improved rapidly and visibility was continually improving. The crew reported back, Roger Tower will commence letdown to approach on runway 32. Basically, descent. Just a different verbiage, but... They're saying they'll commence their descent for runway 32. Air traffic controller then cleared them for the visual approach and reported wind and pressure information and asked the crew to report on final. But the crew was never heard from again. The aircraft impacted the sea off the coast of McKay, about 12 kilometers short of the runway, somewhere between Flat Top Island and Round Top Island. I love that. (laughs) Flat Top Island. Island and Round Top Island. island. <laughs> Probably pretty obvious if you were to see the islands. You guys are very easily amused. Leave me alone. Hey, hey, are you calling us simpletons? <laughs> I didn't say that. <laughs> Nobody had witnessed the aircraft impact the sea, unfortunately. The air traffic controller noted weather condition changes to the flight crew at 10.05 p.m. with no response from the crew. The air traffic controller had not heard from the flight or seen them for several minutes and made several more calls with no reply. Finally, at 10.10 p.m., so about five minutes later, the air traffic controller, who was E.W. Miskell, I don't know, we just still don't know what their names are, contacted Search and Rescue. Five hours after the crash, at 3 a.m. on the 11th of June, some wreckage was found floating on the surface of the ocean. This included damaged passenger seats, clothing, and cabin furnishings about five miles from McKay. On the next day, Sunday the 12th, A Navy ship arrived to search for sunken wreckage, and at 4.20 p.m. that day, they discovered large sections of the airplane in about 40 feet of water, about three nautical miles southeast of the McKay Airport, so a lot closer than even initially thought. It took two weeks to salvage the wreckage. Today, guys, I'm not covering the investigation, because you'll find out in a second, but I have my own little bit later. I am covering the investigation. Woo! A board of accident inquiry was appointed on the 29th of July of 1960, that is over a month later. That is a month and a half later. That's a boo-boo on their part. Yeah. So mind you, they didn't have, like, what we have at NTSB or the, the CAB at the time. They didn't have any of that. And so they created a board of accident inquiry in the country for this crash. But that was a month and a half later. The investigators then sifted through the wreckage for some time looking for clues of what happened. They found that it appeared that the aircraft's engines were operating normally at the time of impact. So they ruled out the engines. The investigators began to suspect heavily that the flight experienced CFIT, or controlled flight into terrain. Something we've talked about a lot in the past. And we'll probably talk a lot about in the future. Yep. So they believed that this may have just been... The airplane had been accidentally flown into the water without them knowing it. They found that the left wing tip had likely impacted the water first. The aircraft was not equipped with black boxes. And it was not required to, in fact. And in fact, no... And in fact... No aircraft were required to anywhere on Earth at the time of this accident. The technology was around, but it was still very new. So black boxes weren't of no use in this crash, unfortunately. And that's extremely important, because this airplane didn't have any. So then they had very little to go on on what was going on. Yeah. The board had difficulties determining what had happened to the aircraft, given what they had. Several suggestions were made as to how the aircraft may have been unintentionally flown into the ocean. One of them, the crew, and particularly the captain, was known for being quite experienced, and it 
came as a shock that this would happen to them, to those that knew and had flown with the crew. It was suggested that the static pressure system, refer to TWA-260, as we had talked about in the past, with its really oddball pressure system that it had, the static pressure system, which gives it some level of altitude indication, may have been faulty and displayed incorrect altitude information to the crew. This was definitely something they considered heavily. Another suggestion that came up that I thought was really interesting, because this is something we just don't consider these days, some suggested that the three-point altimeter indications, one needle for 10-foot indicator, one needle for 100-foot indicator, and one needle for 1,000-foot indicator, were difficult to interpret at times and had been known by other crews to lead to errors of 1,000 or 10,000 feet and were apparently common. It, <laughs> it is a big deal. These were later removed from the cockpits. This is This ended up being a really big point of contention because normal, in, in aviation these days, it's all two-point. You get your hundred foot indicator and your thousand foot indicator. You should know when you cross ten when you cross a ten thousand foot mark. And in most airplanes that still use these double dial indicators, these double needle indicators, they are really on smaller airplanes that can't reach, say, twenty thousand feet. So you should know pretty well what your altitude is. But when you start talking about an airplane this big that can fly that high, it can cause some big errors. And it was put in a lot of different airplanes too. That caused a lot of problems. And I, I will absolutely side with the fact that this can definitely cause some serious confusion. So they limited it from three to two eventually, and that was a much better option. It couldn't be determined if that was a cause or not. Then something else came up. One piece of evidence intrigued the Trans-Australian Airlines Director of Engineering, John Watkins. There's a name we do have. When it came to light that a brown glass medicine bottle was found in the wreckage of the cockpit of the airplane. And this isn't at all what you think. He believed that one of the school children was fascinated by aviation and had been shown the cockpit while he was handling a bottle of model glue for a model aircraft. He believed that the boy may have spilled the glue at some point and the fumes may have distracted the pilots from performing their duties properly, leading to mistakes and subsequently the crash. Okay, listen... This one is really far-stretched. I don't know how he deduced this, but there's absolutely no fact in that whatsoever. Yeah, I... Because they have nothing to determine that anyone else was in that cockpit, ever. I mean, the weird thing is they found the medicine bottle, they determined, I guess, that it was glue in there, but, man, this was one heck of a stretch. They really don't know. And I don't know how he came to this conclusion, but, man, that was, that was a bit of a stretch. That's a huge stretch. Yeah. Also, I don't... Again, this is, like, way before people weren't allowed in cockpits anymore. Right. But I would assume that the children are being supervised by somebody. Yes. And that person probably would be like, please don't bother them right now. They're kind of trying to land the plane. Yes, you would think so. I, I don't know. I think that's a very, 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 I mean, very long stretch to make it from is. a medicine bottle. And it doesn't clearly say that like the kid was in the cockpit when they were trying to perform the landing. They claim that the bottle was dropped and then the fumes distracted the pilot. So maybe the kid was back in his seat, but the bottle was still up there. And the fumes or whatever from the glue were highly distracting or something. I don't know. Also, this, was this just a lot. some smelly glue or something? I don't know. Is I model, don't know. Is model glue normally noxious? I mean, it's kind of like super glue, but that's about it. I don't know. It, I don't know what they had back then, so I don't, I don't know. I don't know what it is. They didn't say. Finally, there was one more explanation, and this one wasn't quite as far-fetched. It was believed by Frank McMullen, another name we have, who was Trans-Australian Airlines' technical service engineer, and was the Fokker F-27 project engineer, 
for the company. He believed that the crew may have been trying to maintain visual contact with the airstrip below the cloud layer and had adopted a low flight path to do so, but they were not paying attention to their altimeter and misjudged the height from the glassy sea, at which point they put the left wingtip into the water as they turned for final causing the airplane to lose control and disintegrate into the water. Now, this one I can actually logically very, very well see, to be honest. Essentially, I mean, you're talking about it in the dark. And yes, I get it, they had a bright moon to help them, but they were trying to stay below a cloud layer. And the whole idea is that they were trying to maintain this visual contact with the airport itself, so they could see the lights in the distance. And they're trying to keep on path for those lights, but in doing so, they had been flying lower and lower and not really knowing it because they weren't paying attention to their altimeter. They were paying attention more to visual contact with the runway and trying to maintain that and stay below the cloud layer that they couldn't even tell out the window that they were so close to the water. And it wouldn't have been a problem if they kept flying maybe straight and level, except that when they made a slight turn for final, the left wingtip dipped below, and as the left wingtip did so, he believes that the wingtip touched the water, and the airplane subsequently just disintegrated into the water from there. I don't think this is as far-fetched as the it seems. The kid with the model glue thing? Yeah, that one's a little... That's that's a know. stretch. This is based on actual science. Like, this could actually happen if this were to have happened. Right. Again, they can't prove it, but this is way more likely, I think, than the kid dropping the bottle on, of glue on the ground. I don't know. That's just ridiculous right. to me. But So, another strange thing happened. As in, so they did all of their sifting through the wreckage and all that. They came up with all these theories on what happened. And then the board was supposed to meet and basically sum up their conclusions. So the board finally opened their discussion for this accident in October. October, October the 4th of 1960. The crash happened in June. Yeah, that's not a very long investigation, and I doubt it could have been as thorough. It's not a very long investigation, but also this is like, to to open formal discussions so much later is kind of, it seems weird. In any case, they met four times in Brisbane and twice in McKay. They concluded their investigation on November 10th of 1960. Seems a little rushed to me. Yes. So, you might have noticed how strange this accident was, how they really didn't determine anything from the wreckage. So, let me get into the probable cause. The investigation was not able to determine a probable cause of this accident. No evidence was found of material or structural defects, fire, or an explosion on board or any commotion or unusual act by any person in the aircraft. It is possible that something happened within the last two to three minutes as a result, of which the pilot was unaware of his actual rate of descent. This could have been either caused by the instruments not accurately recording the altitude, or by the pilot relying on visual observation of his surroundings without paying sufficient attention to the instruments. The accident happened at night with very few visual clues. Their probable cause is that there isn't one. But I'll give them this. They did something very interesting after this, because they saw this as a problem too. The whole world was shaken when an airplane went down with a bunch of school children on board. And the families wanted answers, and then subsequently, the world wanted answers. So... So we'll get into what that answer is. Oh, we're back. Oh, Jesus Christ. Okay. <laughs> I haven't scared you I this time. I was not prepared for that. <laughs> Spooky season, friends. Spooky, Spooky season. season. So they did something really interesting after this accident. Because they knew that no answer was not the answer. And they knew that 
this couldn't satisfy the families, or the world for that matter, when something like this happens. So, that said, there's only one recommendation that came out of this investigation. And that recommendation, knowing that the families, particularly of the school children on board, would not be satisfied with the conclusion of the crash, nor with the watching world from this tragedy, they felt that there was a very important recommendation that needed to be made. Flight recorders be implemented into the Fokker F-27 or larger aircraft, and that they be required at all times. And guess what? They did that. (laughs) The Australians did that, and they were the first on Earth. Okay, so I'm going to get into the history of the very important tool that is recorders on planes, also known as black boxes. There was a history of recorders in military aircraft during World War II to look at acceleration and speed, but not much else, making it hard to garner the exact data that was needed because it did not record altitude. Ones that did include height were introduced in the U.S. and in the U.K. in the early 1950s. Additionally, during World War II, both British and American air forces experimented with voice recorders when they went to combat on a mission in French airspace, and the recording later got relayed back to the U.S. After a series of accidents of the first jet-powered commercial plane, the Comet, which we've talked about just very recently, an Australian research scientist at the Aeronautical Research Laboratory by the name of David Warren took it upon himself to design a recorder such that investigators of future aviation accidents can use the information to find the cause of the accident based on both recordings of the flight crew as well as the data from the plane itself. He struggled getting support from the Australian government, but found interest in England and Canada. Canada. But then Trans-Australia Airlines Flight 538 happened, and Australia suddenly became the first country in the world to require cockpit voice recorders, or CVRs. The Aeronautical Research Laboratory helped Warren in designing a system that was fire-resistant and shockproof, and was initially called the Red Egg because of its shape and color. It also recorded everything on one wire, voice and data. It was later redesigned and moved to the back of planes, as that is generally the part of the plane where chances of retrieval are highest. Because planes usually crash nose first, not tail first. Usually they're going in the nose direction. Another version of the flight data recorder was created by Professor James Ryan, a mechanical engineering professor at the University of Minnesota around the same time. He is also known for inventing retractable seatbelts in cars, which gives him the nickname Crash. He began his design after a recommendation was made by the Civil Aeronautics Board in 1948. This design recorded engine exhaust temperature, fuel flow, velocity, altitude, control surface positions, and rate of descent. Also around the same time, an engineer at Lockheed named Edmund Boniface designed a cockpit sound recorder that had an odd feature of allowing a pilot to erase the recording at the end of the flight. (sighs) I talked about that in a Miranda so don't not erase the cockpit voice recorder. Ever. Now I don't think you can. I don't think you can. Just N- no. don't. Yeah, no, I don't if think you can, don't. I don't think it's possible to re- erase them, at least not so easily anymore. It just gets recorded over. Yep. Yeah. This invention was prompted by the investigation of two separate crashes of Lockheed Electras. Again, Australia was the first to require CVRs after Trans Australia 538. The U.S. followed suit in 1964 and in 1967 required all turbine and piston aircraft with four or more engines to have them. 
In 2008, the FAA increased the length of CVR recording time requirement to two hours instead of the previous 30 minutes. As of 2014, very recently, the U.S. requires all aircraft with 20 or more passengers, turbine-powered, and with two pilots to have both an FDR and CVR. I'm not going to go into the full history of specs for these recorders, but rather we'll delve into what they are able to do today. Both recorders are required by the European Organization for Civil Aviation Equipment to withstand 3,400 Gs at impact for 6.5 milliseconds. Technical standard order by the FAA requires high-intensity fire resistance of 1,100 degree Celsius flame covering 100% of the recorder for 30 minutes and low-intensity fire resistance of 260 degrees Celsius for 10 hours. It must be able to withstand a static crush of 5,000 pounds for 5 minutes on each axis. It must be able to be immersed in aircraft fluid, such as fuel Fuel. or oil, for 24 hours and seawater for 30 days. It should also be able to resist a penetration of 500 pounds dropped from 10 feet with a quarter inch point. And lastly, a hydrostatic pressure, aka water submersion to a depth of 20,000 feet. Flight data recorders record at least 88 parameters in modern aircraft today, though many can record much more and record up to 25 hours of data. Wow. Yep. I mean, this you're talking about something that ultimately is revolutionary in aviation because I think it changed it also changed the mentality in aviation. It changed it from that kind of like luxurious but also very mysterious wild ride that very few know a lot about and most know nothing about to this thing where it's like, no, we, we, we have to learn as much as we possibly can from this industry. And the data recorders are what can help with that. Cause mm-hmm. of course accidents are going to continue to happen, but there just can't be no answer to these accidents anymore. So, you know, the Australians good on them. This isn't the end of everything good that they've ever done. Because the Australians are continually probably the biggest pioneers in safety in aviation around the world. And good for them. They currently still have one of the safest airlines on Earth. Qantas has still never had a hull loss, and the airline's over 100 years old. That that just shows that they care. It's safe. The whole idea behind flight data recorders and cockpit voice recorders comes from Australia and this accident, basically. This was not an enormous accident, but at the time it sure felt like it. And so it was it was good that they they took this action. They knew they weren't going to have the answers they wanted for this specific accident, but they can take solace in having changed the world, I think. Or at least Aviation. taking it into gear, right? I oh, think yeah, absolutely. That this was already in process of becoming an idea sure, when this who, happened, but, but Australia... But actually going to take that final step and say, no, this has to be required? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Australia was that last little push saying, oh, no, we need something on airplanes to make sure when this kind of thing happens, we know what's going on in the cockpit, we know what's going on with the plane, etc., was it as high-tech as it is now? Of course not. Right. But they wanted something so that if something like this happened, where school children especially right. got onto a plane and it crashed, they could figure out what happened, essentially. Right. And when school children did get on a plane again, not in Australia specifically, but any other places, and we've talked 
Um, about a few of them, I think. We'll eventually talk about the one that happened over Europe. Yes. I think in December. But now we know what happened, why it happened, that kind of thing. Right. So some other updates on recorders. So I'm reading a lot of this straight from the Wikipedia site. Again, most reliable of sources. Thank you. One proposition that has been made and has been implemented in some instances is a deployable set of recorders. And I think that this is a pretty valuable next step to have it where if the airplane is in an emergency, basically having impact sensors say on the nose of the airplane, which typically Eject. impacts first. Yeah, well, basically what that would do is, you know, you have those sensors and much in the same way there's sensors in your car that when there's a high impact on the front end of your car, the airbags deploy that it would also do basically the same thing for the recorders. The recorders would just pew out of the airplane. Potentially saving the recorders from fire and damage and all those things. Also, in theory, when it hits water, it could save the life of the recorder and make them usable. Yep. Well, to um, be fair, sorry, um, Air France 447 was in the water for three years and the recorder still which worked. I'll yes. get to in a second. Okay. So, on the matter of deployable recorders, it's actually been used by the U.S. Navy since 1993. Wow. Okay. Good for them. Yeah. Yeah. So now going to Air France 447, we have discussed this a little bit before, but there was legislation brought before Congress to require that the batteries of the pinging system be elongated. Yeah, Yeah. the beacon. They want it to last a lot longer, which to be honest, this day with technology is totally possible. And this was once again brought forward in March March 12th of 2014 after AMH 370. Yep. So... David Price reintroduced the SAFE Act in the U.S. House of Representatives. It's important, I mean, especially because of things like MH370, where we have a lot of questions and a lot of speculation, and I've watched plenty of stuff on MH370 that have aviation professionals, but literally they're arguing with each other and they're all speculating because no one actually knows because... We have none of the information from the plane itself, other than a few pieces of wreckage. Other things that have been suggested are live streaming the data straight from the planes, given today's technology of streaming possibilities. So live streaming the data is actually interesting, too, because this came up with MH370. Basically, they're saying, with all the technology these days and all the satellites, how in the world do you lose one of the largest, most advanced airplanes on Earth And this is true. I would make the argument that it was feeding data to satellites, which is why they know that the airplane was airborne. General direction. Yeah, where it was and that it was at a certain altitude, speed, that all these things based on engine data that was being fed to the satellites. Now, it's true that the 777 that they had also was not equipped with some of the feeding, like the, the systems that feed data to satellites like some of the airlines, some other airlines do. And Malaysia, I think, eventually changed this as a policy of theirs. But basically, they they had opted out of it when they bought the 777, while a lot of other airlines want all of that data fed directly to their ops center through satellite. So they can see all that stuff. Refer to the Qantas flight with the A380, where their operations center were receiving all of the emergency messages, as well as all the data about the airplane. That's very much in in practice now. This conversation was most recently renewed by the 737 MAX crashes. Absolutely. 
a lot of thought goes into how expedient this investigation has been. So particularly the Ethiopia crash right now has taken a minute. And they wonder if they had had 20 minutes just streamed to the operator, how much they would have garnered faster. Yeah. The conversation is not over by any means. Australia is now pioneering or attempting to pioneer something else very new, which is adding black box recorders to helicopters. Because mm-hmm. Oh yeah, we talked about this with Chris. Yes, as we talked about with Chris, there was and it finally got to the world stage with the Kobe Bryant crash. Because we still don't know exactly what happened. We only have so much information. There was no black boxes in the helicopter. In Australia, probably their biggest killer in aviation is still helicopters because they're actually used and we discussed this with chris as well for hurting livestock because people own massive and i mean massive portions portions of land it can take them days with a helicopter to find their livestock over just massive amounts of space i mean millions of square miles basically which is insane to me still yes they own literally like whole states in size of land And they have to go find these livestock, and then they have to herd them. And it's actually easiest to do with helicopters. And if you ever go watch this stuff, it is the craziest thing you will ever see. They literally herd them with the helicopters, and they'll get down right to the ground and bump them on the butt with the skid of the helicopter and all that stuff. Like, they are some skilled, skilled pilots, but it is one of the most dangerous jobs on Earth. And it does kill them regularly, which is unfortunate. And so... In Australia now, there's a big push to add black box recorders to helicopters to find out what actually happens in some helicopter crashes. And I'm sure the U.S. will follow suit. There's the history. There's what you got. And that was the cursed episode. We made it through, guys. Yeah. Let's hope that this doesn't sound weird. Now the biggest part is that we need to make sure it is double, triple saved and that it gets edited and posted. Yeah. Thanks again, Chris for giving us a very, very, very cursed episode. We're sorry. But this is probably one of the most important episodes we've ever done. So the crash doesn't seem like much. But at the same time, this is... It instigated an entire movement. Yeah, it instigated the one thing we talk about in nearly every single episode, which is the black boxes. Black box data is very, very important to investigators and to the general public just to find out what happened. So It's how we learn in aviation, it's how we progress, and it's how we always get better and safer. And we have, so significantly since then. And they often publish the data from these recorders. They you do. can Google any crash and look up CVR. At least the transcript is probably there, if not the recording itself. Yeah. And quite frankly... We could go deeper and say, if the black boxes didn't exist, our podcast probably wouldn't, because we we wouldn't know what was happening. We wouldn't have enough information really to even talk about it. It would be more of a mystery podcast than an aviation safety podcast. So that was Trans-Australian Airlines 538. 538. Thanks again for listening. Thanks again for continuing to listen. Yeah. And this one was a short one for you guys. Yeah. Again, thanks. Oh, remember... The listener episode for October, the theme is spooky stories. So if you have a spooky story from a trip or from an airport or working for an airline, please go to the website and go to the listener submission button and tell us your story. And I think that's all we have for you this week. Stay safe, stay healthy, wear wear a a mask, mask. and we'll catch you next (laughs) week. Keep Keep your speed up. Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hard Landings Podcast and on Twitter at Hard Landings Pod. 
Subscribe and leave a five-star review on the platform you are using to listen. If you would like to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at heartlandingspodcast.com, where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us, plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi from Not a Monster, Not a Boogeyman. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.